there are um, a handful of places in the Bible that leap off the page in terms of their significance. Uh, the Bible is God's word. It's all inspired. So we know it's all important. It's all relevant. But there are a few places in the Bible where men and women get to experience something so rare, um, it, it's almost difficult to really truly put ourselves in that position. We're told in the earliest chapters of the Bible that God is so holy and he is in such a separate category of purity and righteousness that God is so brilliant in the light that he dwells in and that in his nature and in his being, he is so overwhelming to all other creatures that you can't be in his presence and live. You can't dwell in the light that God alone dwells in. And so we're told in texts like Exodus and other places in the Bible that no one can see God and live. And yet God in his kindness has arranged a handful of meetings, a couple of meetings where people don't see God in all his glory because that would be the end of them. But God has arranged a few visits where God veils enough of his own glory and in his kindness and in his condescension, he allows people to see him, not in the fullest sense, but in some sense. And um, good night. Uh, can you imagine being one of those people to see not just what no eye in your generation have seen, but see what no human being has ever seen. You know, we, we, th we think about stuff like this. We, we think about the handful of men that walked on the moon, right? That's pretty cool. I mean, you, you got to admit, even if you're not a space geek, that's pretty amazing that, that men actually walked on the moon and we're working on Mars and possibly going back to the moon right now. Only a handful of people have done that. Uh, think, of, think of people that have uh, experienced, maybe, maybe they're a, a scientist and they're able to explore you know, some facet of creation that no eye has seen before. Maybe it's one of those few people that have ascended Mount Everest or you know, something like that, right? But to see the glory of God is something that is absolutely incredible. Now, now think with me. Who are those people in the Bible that got to see something of the glory and person of God, veiled as it was? Who, who are some of those people in the Bible? Th think with me here. What's that? Okay. When he went to the third heaven? Okay. We assume that he, he saw something there, right? Okay. So that's uh, uh, what? 2 Corinthians chapter 12 describes that. 
Okay, Daniel in the Ancient of Days, right? In Daniel chapter 7. Very good. Moses, okay? And, and there's actually, Moses is the only guy that we know got to see something twice. And, and that's and, and you say it, it almost became a, a role because you remember he would go to the tent of meeting and the Bible tells us he would meet with God and it, it was it was so physiologically transforming on her his persona. What did the people say? Put a bag over your head, dude. Right? Put a veil because not because it was so bright and they couldn't see him, because that glory brought dread on the congregation it was so awesome it was such a reminder of god's holiness they had to cover it okay so uh so moses in in that tent of meeting time right we understand that in exodus 34 he got to see the back of god's glory you remember the narrative there where god hides him in the rock and then uh in a couple of earlier chapters uh moses and aaron the 70 elders nadab and abihu aaron's uh Aaron's sons, who eventually died in in, um, in Leviticus when they offered strange fire, but before that, when they went to the top of Sinai, the Bible tells us that they got to see God there. Okay, who else? You guys are doing great. Who else? Who else got to see something of the glory of God? Yeah, John in Revelation. Yeah, absolutely. John's in the throne room. <laughs> All right, and and we could we could separate those people that saw visions or dreams versus people that actually went there as Paul apparently did, or actually were at the top of a mountain like Moses was. Okay, but nonetheless, it's it's still the same sort of overwhelming. Okay, I think we got most of them. I think there's one or two more. Okay, Adam walked with God. Yeah, before the fall. Okay, what's that? Uh, Enoch walked with God. That's right. Yeah, that, that's said of him. And I think I think in that context it would mean that he was a believer. Um, now maybe he saw something because remember he didn't die. He he was translated uh, into glory. That, that's by the way, if you have a chance to pick, I hear that's the that's the best way to go to heaven. It's just the Enoch method where you just bypass the whole death and suffering thing. And if you can, uh, that's the route to go. One other person. Uh, yeah, we're going to get to Isaiah. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Don't forget the obvious. That's right. Actually, uh, three other people. That, that might help you. Samuel. On Samuel? Yeah. Help me there. I'm trying to remember the... Did, he, did, did God talk to him or whatever when he was, uh, when he was uh, under Eli? Or... Right, yeah, 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 okay, yeah, exactly, yeah. When when the, the call of Samuel, yeah, okay. Yeah, so so he heard God, but maybe he saw something there, maybe he didn't. What were you going to say? Peter, James, and John. When? The Transfiguration. Okay. Now, now, can you imagine that? So, so, um, so Jesus is hanging out with the twelve apostles, right? And and he looks like uh, uh, where Tyler go? He looks like Tyler. You know, let's just pick on on Tyler Looper. Okay, Ty- Tyler's about his age there, so that's. All right, and all, so you're just hanging out with a guy, and you go up on this mountain, and all of a sudden God takes the veil off of this man, and Peter, James, and John all of a sudden are in the presence of something like Mount Sinai, or Daniel's Ancient of Days, or John's Revelation, right? 
Okay, so it's just it's just absolutely overwhelming to think about that. So, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to look at one of those rare places where someone got to see the glory of God. And uh, no, I'm sorry, you had your hand up, bud. What were you going to say? Yeah, yeah, that's a good one, isn't it? And 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 for for the old people here that don't remember the story, where did God fit into that story? That's right. And, and who was in there with him? That's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar says one that's like one of the son of God, right? So, yeah, so that, that could have been Jesus or, or at least an angel, but yeah, it's, that's awesome, yeah. Okay, very good. Anybody, any other, I don't want to... Uh, we sure can, yeah, yeah, we're, we're not, yeah, and I guess when we're saying we've seen God, we're seeing God in something of his glory and his, his visible his, his visible radiance, yeah. Jesus, of course, as the God-man, his glory was veiled most of the time. So, Gail? Yeah, <laughs> okay, all right, yes, yeah. let's not forget Eve. She walked with God, too. Uh, yeah, she was fine until she went produce shopping, right? And then, uh, so, anyway. But her husband went with her, so don't, let's get whip up on her, so. All right. Yeah, Stephen, yeah. Stephen, as he was dying, he saw the heavens open and the Lord Jesus standing at his right hand. And yeah, that's right. Okay, so you, guys, so you see, yeah, yeah, Mike. What's that? Mary Magdalene? Okay. Okay, yeah, yeah, because there's a, there's a part of the narrative that makes me think that, it makes us think that maybe, uh, maybe there was some afterglow of that, of that, coming back from the dead and, and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, so that's true, yeah. Yeah, this is good. You guys are good, man. You guys Bible scholars? This is awesome. This is great. But the point is, think of all the trillions of people that have lived and walked the earth, and there's like 12 or 15 that we just accounted for that have seen this. So you recognize this is a rare thing. Now, what's neat is the Bible uh, gives, many times gives us a very significant account of these references. Now, you, now I would think there, there are times in the Bible you, you wish... You know, there was a there was a video download supplement that went with this thing, right? And you could watch it. But but here's the thing. I used to think as a younger Christian that this would be the video I would want to see. And yet the reality is uh, I've never been attracted to horror movies. Because I don't think if we had the opportunity to get close to some of these experiences that we would be attracted to them like, hey, there's a new roller coaster. Let's go ride it. That's a, I, I don't think that's it. I think if, if we could get close to one of these encounters and we had the option to experience it or not experience it, I will tell you on the basis of the universal response of people who actually went through these experiences, they would say, no, don't go. Don't go. That's right. That's right. Yeah, they they said Moses, you go talk to God. We don't want to get anywhere near. We don't get get anywhere near him. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Okay, so Isaiah chapter six. I just want to read this um, chapter, and uh, this is familiar. I know probably almost everyone here has read this or is familiar with it. But let me just, I want to read it, and, and this is what, I, as I read it, here's what I want you to do. 
I want you to imagine that you're Isaiah. I want you to imagine that you are experiencing what Mr. Isaiah experienced. Now, scholars believe that even though this account happens in chapter 6, this is actually a historical account of the beginning of his ministry. Okay, so this is his call to ministry. Even though we've got chapters 1 to 5 so far, those describe events of his ministry that happened after chapter 6. Okay, so the book of Isaiah is not necessarily in chronological order. So this was his call to ministry. Uh, all the other ministry, including verses one, chapters 1 to 5, probably happened after this. But as, as you put yourself in the sandals of Mr. Isaiah, I want you to think about what you saw. I want you to think about what you hear. I want you to, to think about what you feel. I want you to think about what you smell. And I want you to feel and think about um, the experience in terms of your response. Okay? Chapter 6, verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of His robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. And then I said, woe is me for I am ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. We'll stop right there. Sensory overload. Did you catch it? He sees things. He hears things. He smells things. He feels in his being things. To to be in the presence of God is an utterly overwhelming experience. So let's look at it together. Isaiah tells us that this, uh, the, the title of our message um, today is uh, Seeing God. And I think that got, that, um, I, I think that got missed, so we can just call it Seeing God. Um, 
And uh, there's our uh, there's our list of some of the people that got to see something of God's glory. And I need to add a few to my list because you guys thought of some that I didn't think about. So we'll get those later. Okay. So Isaiah tells us that um, this vision happened in the year of King Uzziah's death. And we know both from biblical history and from archaeological history that that was 739 B.C. Uh, and Uzziah had reigned, Uzziah, excuse me, had reigned uh, for 52 years as the king of Judah. And we can go back to Second Chronicles 26. Um, he died of leprosy. We learned that in the account. And uh, so this is the year 739. I, Isaiah pinpoints it as uh, when he saw this, this vision. Now notice Isaiah says in that year, he saw the Lord sitting on a throne, uh, lofty and exalted. You'll notice the word Lord here is not our all capitalized Lord, but our lowercase. He saw, we might say, the sovereign one. The ruler, uh, the king, the lord, the master, uh, the one in charge. And uh, we'll see the significance because he comes back to use the personal name of God in verse 3. So there's no doubt this is the Lord. But the first thing he notices is not the the, the person of God. And this is Yahweh. This is the, the personal God. This is uh, the God of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the first thing he notices is that he is in the presence of the ruler. Now, we might ask the question, where is he? Because usually a vision is accompanied by language that tells us that, right? Or if it's a dream, it's, you know, while he slept. Or it, it would be, uh, you know, he, he saw a vision of the Lord. We, we, that language is typical. And we don't have any of this here. Which makes us wonder, where is Isaiah? What do you think? Where, where might he be? Yeah, he could be dreaming, right? We'd, ha- we'd have to read that into the context, but that's certainly a legitimate possibility. In the throne room where? Okay. Okay. So he could be like uh, like Paul. He could have been translated to heaven for this experience. That's true. Now, now you, you need to think like you live in the 8th century here. That's part of the problem. Okay, so, so you need to transport yourself back to the 8th century in your mind. You're in Judah. What's, what's, the, what's the center point of the city? The temple. Now remember, at this point, the temple is still standing, isn't it? So, the most likely explanation, yeah, he could have gone to heaven, he could have been dreaming, he could have, those are all legitimate, but in the absence of language that points to that, it's possible that Isaiah is actually in the temple. He is the prophet of God. Um, And even prior to this, uh, a godly man before his commission, so... Yeah, the, the image that, that comes to mind is, is he's in the temple or he's in the temple area and, and he, he sees this. Now, as, as soon as we picture that, um, we have to recognize that some of the things that he's going to see are clearly not normative in the temple. Okay, So wherever he is this, is, this is way beyond your typical experience of the average high priest of the day. 
Notice the language here. Look, look at this. Notice the language. Where is he? He's sitting, he's sitting on a throne. Where is that throne? That throne is lofty and exalted. The word lofty means high or exalted. The word uh, in the New American Standard here, exalted, you know, so there's two words, right? Lofty and exalted, and they, they work together as a pair to emphasize God's height, his lifted up and upness, his, his exaltation. And, and I noted there in your notes the word action. And this is something that, that gets missed in the English translation. There are different ways to describe a person, right? We're, we're describing the king on his throne here, God high and lifted up. And, and one of the ways you can do that is by using other descriptive adjectives. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to take you to, to grammar school here for a minute. You can use adjectives. Uh, kids, an adjective is a word that describes what? A noun or a another adjective, right? You know that. But here, Hebrew allows us to do something different. And actually, we have a way of doing this in English also using participles, and, and Hebrew does also. You can take a verb, an action word, and you can turn it into an adjective. You say, well, why, why wouldn't we just use a normal, you know, God's high, he's lifted up, we get the idea. Why would we use a verb to do that? Because verb adds a punch to it. It adds an emphasis to it. This is not God who's kind of high. He's kind. This is, he is over everyone else. And Isaiah uses some verbs here to emphasize the exalted nature of God. Um, you know, sometimes we sing that song, Lord, I lift your name on high, or he is exalted. And, and sometimes that sounds like a pep rally, you know, and, and I like pep rallies just like you like pep rallies. Don't, you got to get that out of your mind. This is not, let's get excited about God because he's lifted up. This is, I'm in the presence of the sovereign of the universe who hung and named every star in the heavens. I'm in the presence of the one who supplies every molecule of air I need this very moment to breathe and exist. And if he were to remove his hand from that, we would cease to be. That's the emphasis. He is in a position, not like a king would might be exalted, he is in a position occupied by no other. And the language, uh, Isaiah uses language to help to emphasize that. Now notice, are you picturing this? Isaiah walks in and he sees the Lord high and lifted up, exalted. Notice this. And the train of his robe, are you guys okay with train? That's not like, you know, choo-choo Amtrak. That's like, you know, the, 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 his robe extends beyond the ground into, you know, this continued bit of garment that it says here, look at this, the train of his robe is filling the temple. Can you picture that? This king on his throne and his his garments, his royal garments are so majestic that they fill up all the excess space in this temple area. 
And again, that makes us wonder, where is Isaiah? Is, is he in the physical temple? Has he been translated to heaven? We don't know, but, but he's in, he's in some temple. He's in some facility with God. But he's not alone with God, is he? Notice this. There are creatures that are with him. Let me introduce you to the seraphim. Okay, the seraphim. Just like that word in our psalm that we saw, we read, you know, we're kind of comfortable with seraphim because most of us have been to church before. But that's a Hebrew word. Seraph. Um, adding the I am on the end of the word makes it plural. So seraph would be singular. Seraphim would be plural. In our language, we add an S to make things plural typically, right? In Hebrew, you add an I-M if it's masculine or an I-N if it's feminine, okay? So seraphim, seraph. Now, what are these? The, the fact that the Bible gives us the Hebrew word and not an English word tells us, again, there's some ambiguity here. So what's a seraphim? What, what are those? Okay, it, it's an angel. It's some sort of angelic uh, creature, isn't it? And um, we get a little bit of a description here. Uh, these seraphim stood above him. And, and that makes it sound like, the, the verb there makes it sound like, well, maybe, uh, maybe they have these, these uh, you know, podiums that are above the king of kings. And, but yet we find out in a few minutes they're not, they're not standing above. They're stationed above him. The language is broad enough. It doesn't necessarily mean their feet are on the ground. What do we find out in a moment? They're flying. This is getting bizarre, isn't it? I mean, these are apparently, you know, rotary wing devices here that are providing their own lift to station themselves above the Lord. Let's get a description here. First of all, how many are there? Not wings. How many seraphim are there? I'm hearing four. I'm hearing six. I'm hearing three. I'm, I'm seeing blank stares looking at Pastor Keith like, will you just tell us? Uh, the, the answer is we don't know. Because seraphim just means there's more than one of them. And we know there's more than one because one calls out to the other in a minute. And, you know, one calling out to another, it could just be there's two. But the language doesn't necessarily mean that. Um, the, the, the plural here and, and the fact that we're going to see the foundations of the whole facility are being shaken. And we'll also look at a parallel in Revelation here in a minute that um, maybe, maybe there's more than two. You know, when, uh, when Jesus showed up in Bethlehem and there were some shepherds keeping their watch over their flock by night, right? And the angel of the Lord appeared and the glory of the Lord. We, we know that, right? And then, and then suddenly there appeared with the angel, what? A multitude of the heavenly host. So it could be there's only two. It could be the temple is full of these beings. Where are they? Uh, they're above, right? We, we saw that. They're, they're stationed above. Uh, the narrative tells us here they have six wings. Now, now, what do you notice about these 
these wings. And of course, you know, when, when we think of airplanes, we, we usually... Uh, we usually describe them by pairs of wings, right? A typical airplane is a monowing. If it's a two-winged airplane, we call it a biplane, right? We're, we're, we're thinking of terms of pairs of wings. So when we talk about six wings here on these creatures, we're talking about three pairs, right? So it's a tri, it's a triplane angel. I don't, what will we call this? A, um, uh, a, a, uh, a German aircraft, obviously, right? Uh, um, okay, they, they've got six wings. Now, now notice, what are, the, what are the wings doing here? They're not all designed for flight. The, the first pair of wings, what are they doing? Isn't that weird? Why would the wings cover the face? Do you remember the cherubim, another type of angelic creature and... and Moses was given the instructions to build the tabernacle and the mercy seat, the lid of the of the the Ark of the Covenant, the holy box, and there were to be cherubim uh, molded out of gold, and they were to position their wings in a way as what they were covering it. Okay, we see this theme: the wings over the eyes indicate that God is so separate and pure and holy, even His created creatures to be in His presence and to do His will are not qualified to look at God. Now, I want you to see something. Everything in this narrative, we typically think of the hymn, holy, 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 right? And and that's where we get this. Everything, everything in this narrative is designed to impress upon us the holiness of God. Even the position of the wings. So with two, they cover their face as not to look at God, as to emphasize His holiness, His, his separateness. What, what's the next pair doing? Covering the feet. Why, why is that? Okay. That's right. We think of Moses... And the burning bush, right? Take off your sandals because you're on holy ground, right? That's it. It's almost like from, from head to toe, God is emphasizing to us His utter holiness that the feet must be covered, the head must be covered in acknowledgement of God's holiness. And with the last pair, what's the last pair doing? There's our flight wings, okay? And... Um, uh, I will not get out my soapbox on our problem with coming up with cute angel fingerings and putting them in our bathrooms and turning them into little good luck charms and whatnot. You you would not want to be in the presence of this creature, let alone a room full of them. Like I said, this this is more akin to a horror movie than something that you would want to see on your own. And I mean that. And we'll see that here in terms of Isaiah's response, okay? So the six wings, two over the face, two over the feet, two flying. Notice here too, hold your place and, and flip over to Revelation chapter 4. We have a similar description of some creatures that John sees in the book of Revelation. So Revelation chapter 4, just hold your place there in Isaiah and notice this. So John is 
this is the, the scene of Revelation where we know John is translated into heaven because chapter 4 verse 1 tells us that's where he was located. And John sees here the throne room. Verse 5, out of the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. There were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures. Now, now listen to these guys. Okay, listen to the description. Full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion. The second creature like a calf. The third creature had a face like that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having how many wings? Okay, so we have some similarity there. Are full of eyes. Now the wings are full of eyes also. And within, and day and night, they do not cease to say what familiar refrain. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders representing the church, will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will forever, um, I'm sorry, will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created. So with the, because the wings are covering the face and the wings are covering the feet, Isaiah doesn't get to tell us what these creatures look like. If it's the same creatures as we're describing here in Revelation chapter 4, we see that they are even more bizarre looking than we might have first anticipated. Now we can parallel this description with Ezekiel chapter 1 and chapter 10, which we will not do right now because we don't have time. But you'll notice that those are usually described as cherubim, which means there seems to be some distinction between the seraphs, uh, the seraphim and the cherubim. Uh, Ezekiel tells us they only had four wings. So it's possible that, you know, some are biplanes and some, some are triplanes in, in the angelic world here. But nonetheless, nonetheless, do you see the similarities? These creatures that surround the throne room of God, they're, they're speaking the same refrain back and forth as the redeemed people of humanity are bowing in worship and all that. And you, know, you might read that, and, and maybe some of you kids feel like this, you might read that and go, is that what heaven's going to be like? Is it going to be like a church service that never never ends? You know, I mean, is that... you know what's funny? I, I've been to a couple of football games, like, like college uh, games, when you're rooting for your team, uh, and I don't really have a team, I guess I used to have a team, but um, people stand for four hours rooting for their team. They're not tired, right? They don't get, get doesn't get old shouting for their team to win, booing the other team, correcting the refs. I mean, you, you don't get tired when it's your team, when it's something you love. And that's what we see here 
Uh, you know, and, and maybe football's not your thing. There's something in your life that you don't mind standing for for four hours, even though you're uncomfortable. Even though you're losing your voice. And that's the picture of what glory will be like. You are so caught up in this thing. It's like your team winning for all of eternity. <laughs> and you don't get tired rooting for that team, do you? Okay, back to Isaiah. So we have similar descriptions here of these angelic creatures. Now, what are they doing? This is really interesting. And um, the word seraph, some of you may know this, the word seraph is related to the word for fire. Seraph, if we could literally translate it, means burning one or fiery one. And in fact, it's used, um, do you remember the, the, the fiery serpent from uh, numbers, right? Remember the whole thing with Moses and the serpents and all that? Okay, it's used in similar language like that. So I don't know what your picture is of these seraphim, but this is the best artist description I could find based on all of the biblical data. Um, I don't want to go anywhere near that dude. Do you? A fiery creature with six wings. Hovering in place over the throne room of God. Look at this. And they are not quiet either. (laughs) Verse 3. And one called out to another and said, Holy Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. So what are they doing? One calls out to another. That may mean there's only two of them. That's possible. Or it may mean they were just taking their turn. Certainly the the vision of Revelation is that there could have been four. Luke 2 there could have been a whole throne room full. We, we don't know. But they are proclaiming. The, the word means calling out, proclaiming. It's not Often when we think about this, we think about them singing. And it's possible that they were singing, but the language doesn't say that. The language is that they're preaching. They're proclaiming this. They're announcing it. They're, they're not having like a, like a kumbaya thing around a campfire. They are announcing God's holiness upon the nations look at this we know this holy 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 and this is where we've got to understand this word because i know your whole life you have been told that holiness means purity right separate from sin and if we look at the background of the word it's true the the word means something like to separate to be to be uh if we go etymology meaning the background of the word you know it's like you take something and you cut it and you set it apart and that that is the background of the word and it does have this idea of separateness uh from sin from fallenness from corruption and that's what makes you and me and god different right he is utterly sinless and we come into the world as sinners don't we so there is that that difference but but from that definition theologians emphasize another aspect of holiness and this is really 
you can't separate the, no, no pun intended, you can't separate the two definitions. But it's not just separateness of sin. It's not just purity from sin. It's this idea of otherness. And it, it's almost hard to even translate it. The, the, the best we could do is to say God's uniqueness. It, it's like saying God occupies a category all his own. God is not just a higher manifestation of creatures. He, he's not, he, he's utterly separate from his creation. He is set apart from his creation in terms of sin, in terms of his being. But here's the thing. He is not like us. He is other. He is unique. Special is way too trite, right? But it's just, he, he is, he is something utterly different. The prophet said, there is no one like the Lord. And, and they were absolutely right. They're, they're not just playing favorites there. There is no one like the Lord. No one in the whole of creation. So what are they saying as they say this? Holy, holy, holy. They're saying, you, Lord, are other, not like us, unique, separate from sin, pure, holy, righteous, sinless, over and over and over again. Why three times? Why three times? Okay, all right. Greg, Greg is right. I think there may be an allusion to the triunity of God. And that's true, but we really need New Testament theology to, to see that. Okay, so how would Isaiah, how would his contemporaries have interpreted this holy, holy, holy? Especially important, yes. It's emphatic. The, the way that you highlight and circle and star, you know, put a spotlight on something in this language as you repeat it, right? The Lord, the Lord God, Exodus 34, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger about, okay? The repetition of words should make you stop, put your pen down when you're reading your Bible and pay more attention because it's repetition. So when you see things repeated twice, that's like, hey, stop, pull the car over and, and, and look again. So when you see things repeated three times, it is as strong an emphasis as the Bible knows how to communicate. So God is other, other, other. He's unique, unique, unique. He's sinless, sinless, sinless. He's pure, utterly pure, completely pure. More than you can even state. Is, here it is, here's the, the divine name of God, Yahweh of hosts, right? This is God in BDUs. This is God as the, the military leader, the commander in chief of the armies of the host of heaven. He is utterly separate and other and unique and different. Now notice this, the whole earth is full of that glory. What is he saying? Isaiah is saying the whole earth, really the whole universe demonstrates the truthfulness of holy, holy, holy. I mean, did you pay attention when you were driving in this morning? 
Blue sky after lots of cloudy days and rain, right? Birds chirping, flowers blooming, grass turning green. Nice little breeze out of the north today, right? You got the weather? Okay. Um, You go, wow, where did this come from? And and see, we just get up every morning and that's, you know, sun comes up and I got air to breathe and it's a beautiful creation. The whole earth demonstrates the wisdom and the, I mean, can you, can you do this? Can you, can you make an ant, you know, real simple little creature, right? Can you, can you command the morning? Did you hear that? Remember David? I'm going to awaken the dawn, poetically speaking, right? You know, meaning he's going to get up and he's going to praise God before the sun gets up to praise God. Well, that's kind of neat. But David can't actually awaken the dawn. Only God can do that. Think of, think of our dear sister Treva. Think of the, the systems in her body that, that, you know, first, you know, had a problem and were able to be corrected. And, and how do you even put that together? The whole earth is full of the glory of God. If we will just open our eyes every, every day. Anybody have any new grandbabies this last year? New grandbabies, okay? All right, the whole earth is full of the glory in that little bundle of joy, right? And the Bible testifies to this over and over and over again. If, if God is boring to you, if God, if you're honest and you say, God makes me yawn, Pastor Keith, what are you all excited about? I know I'm supposed to believe God is an awesome God, but really, truly, in my heart of hearts, He is boring. You know what you need to do? You need to open your eyes. And you need to think about every day the millions of evidences around you that the whole earth is full of the glory and majesty and utter holiness of God. It's there. If our affections are not aroused to view God as the great and only amazing God that He is, it is not because God has not provided sufficient evidence. It's because our eyes are closed. And these beings serve to remind all of creation of the reality of those truths. You think even in heaven when we're perfect, right? Even in heaven when we don't forget, when we don't get bored, when, when we don't need reminders, what do these creatures do? They keep on saying it. Not because we need reminders, but because God is worthy of that refrain. Notice this too. Are you there? Are you picturing what this is like? You're in the throne room. You're seeing this. Right? And it's all been seeing. Now you're hearing it. Holy, holy, holy. I don't know how you picture that. Maybe the hymn comes to mind like it does for me. Have, Have you ever... Where's the old people? Can I talk to old people for a minute? Have you ever been minding your own business driving down 377 and you're parked at one of our many, many, many stoplights that we have now here that always seem to be red when you're in a hurry? And some young whippersnapper pulls up next to you 
with his new ride. And he's got, you know, 50% of the power output of the nuclear plant in town somehow put in his new truck. Dialed in to the subwoofers, all nine of them in the back. Right? And he comes up and it's like, boom, to boom, boom, to boom, to boom, boom, to boom. And you're like this, boom, to boom, boom, to boom. Right? You're, you're, you can feel the power of the resonant bass frequencies. Right? That are literally shaking bolts off of your car. You, you been there? Okay, I don't love that either. And I like loud music. Um, As silly as that is, I want you to imagine being in this temple. And as soon as the seraphim open their voice, you can feel their words in your bones. Holy. Right? Holy. Holy. And not only can you feel it, the structure that you're in feels it. And the text says the foundations of the threshold, the the door framing of the temple, if you will, probably because Isaiah was, what what do you do? You you may not know this. Um, I'm a West Coast boy. In an earthquake, where's one of the safest places to be in a structure? The doorway, right? Because it's one of the strongest places, right? Um, Isaiah says that structurally sound part of the facility where he was residing is what is shaking and trembling as if it's going to give way. You sure you wanted to be there? With every word that these seraphim repeat... The whole place creaks and trembles. Something like earthquake language is being used here. He can feel it. So watch this. He's seeing things. He's hearing things. He's feeling things in his body. And that's not enough. Look at the next part of the verse. As the whole temple was filling with Smoke. Now he smells it. Is that that could be incense? Well, it could be incense, but that's not the description. The description is the whole place is like on fire. <laughs> now it doesn't say he's coughing and gasping, but when you breathe in smoke, like when I breathe in smoke, that's what you do, right? I want you to see God has purposely overwhelmed all of the senses of Mr. Isaiah to emphasize the radical, overwhelming nature of his holiness. He sees it, he hears it, he feels it, he smells it. It is absolute sensory overload. And Isaiah is so overwhelmed, he does what every other human being who has ever encountered the living God does. He falls 
to his knees, if he already wasn't there, and he says, I'm dead. Woe is me. Different, different word than the woes we saw last chapter. Same idea. Woe is me. What is woe? It is an announcement of doom, of destruction. I'm dead. I'm, I'm in this plane plummeting to the ground and there's no hope for me. The, the word, how does your Bible translate it? I am what? Woe is me. I am what? Finished. I am finished. Helpless. Helpless. Hopeless. Hopeless. Undone, ruined, okay? You get the idea? The, the word actually means destroyed. And those are all great little poetic ways to try to get there. It means destroyed. I am ruined. I'm, uh, the ESV says lost, and, and that's kind of going etymologically the wrong direction from the idea here. It really means destroyed. Isaiah says, I am a dead man. Uh, maybe some of you have been in combat situations or natural disasters or a car accident. Have, you don't need to raise your hand, but have you ever been so overwhelmed by fear that you literally think it's the end of your life? That's Isaiah. Now, here's what's interesting. It is not... Just the shock and awe of the experience that makes him think he's dead. Although that certainly would be valid. He says, I am destroyed. I am ruined. I am a dead man. Why? Because I am a man of unclean lips. And... My people are too. What, is he, what does he mean by unclean lips? What does he mean? What's that? Sinful. Sinful. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's a very picturesque, picturesque way of saying, I'm a sinner. You think what Jesus said in Luke 6? The mouth speaks from that which fills the what? The heart. He's saying, I am sinful to the core of my being. And I live amongst a people that are just the same way. And my sinfulness in light of the holiness. What does he say? Woe is me. I am destroyed. I am ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips. I've lived amongst a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the... I'm dead. Can I ask you a question? When you think about God in His being, in light of who you are, is that your response? This chapter is not here so we can go, ooh, ah, this chapter here is here to challenge how petty and dismissive we have made our sin. How domesticated we have made a holy God. And how utterly deficient our view 
of God is in light of our own sin. That's why this chapter's here. You say, well, but what about Jesus? What about redemption? What about forgiveness? Oh, we're going to get there. It's in the next verse. But, but, but tap the brakes a bit. Because the gospel, I say this, the gospel will not be the source of hope and rescue and, and value and glory. You, you will not stand up and cheer for the gospel like you do your favorite team for four hours at a college football game. You will not do that until you view your God like this and until you see your sin like this. Brothers and sisters, we are all dead men and women in the sight of a holy God who is not just other, but is holy, holy, holy. And our only hope, our only hope is if a sacrifice can be made on our behalf to somehow fix that. Look at the next word. Look at the next verse. Now what was what, what's the one of the five senses that's missing? Taste. He's not done. He sees, he hears, He feels, he smells. Now, one of those shock and awe creatures who might have been on fire, who's levitating, hovering, reveals tongs (laughs) and goes to the altar and removes a burning coal. And he starts approaching you. What would you do? I know what I would do. (laughs) And he just doesn't like, hey, you want to see what I've got here? He takes it. What would you think? Be honest. What what do you think is about to happen? I'm dead. And here comes my executioner, right? Don't read this and say, oh, wow, the gospel. Read that and think, ah, I'm going to die. Because that's, that's exactly what's going on. And then the most unexpected, amazing thing happens. This seraph, who Mr. Isaiah thought would be his executioner, touches his mouth. And he doesn't die. In fact, everything changes with that touch. Everything that he was worried about, every fear, everything changes when that atoning sacrifice is applied. Right? Look at what he says. Then one of the serving flew had a burning coal, which he had taken from the altars. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away. Watch this. 
and your sin, what does your Bible say? Is forgiven. Oh, but it's not that word. I love this. This is the best part of the whole deal, guys. It's not the normal word for forgiveness. It's the word kafar from kapur, like yom kapur, like day of atonement lane. You know where I'm going, right? This is the word for atonement. This is a sacrifice offered as a substitute in your place because of your sin which brings you back into right relationship with God. Appeasing His wrath, absolving your guilt, paying the price for your sin so that Isaiah now stands, this is crazy, he stands in God's presence blameless and forgiven and reconciled and atoned for and redeemed. Woo! Right? That sounds an awful lot like the gospel. (laughs) And you would be right. Guys, this is the gospel according to Isaiah. This is the essence of who God is, who you are, and what God does through a sacrifice to make you and me right with Him. That's right. Yeah, see, the gospel of the New Testament does not make any sense until you get this, right? Um, let's, let's put some of the things on the, the thing here so you got it, okay? Okay. Um, wow. I don't even know what to say other than that's just really overwhelmingly amazing. So maybe it's good to just leave it like that. Uh, Father, thank you for your holiness. Thank you for this incredible encounter that no doubt left Isaiah permanently transformed. And we pray that reading about it today and putting ourselves in that position, it would have a similar effect. Lord, we in our sin, in your holiness, we are dead people. And our only hope is if you provided a sacrifice that would touch our lips, touch our heart, and change us, forgive us, provide for us what we can't provide for our own. And we thank you that though Isaiah would talk about the Messiah and allude to the Messiah and write and preach about the Messiah, that we know exactly how your plan came to place to to actually put into motion what Isaiah describes here in this amazing encounter. So we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the gospel. Lord, make us walk away with three things. How holy you are, how sinful we are, and how much we need that atoning sacrifice through the Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.